This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie Nacherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And we're here to talk about film with you once again. Hello, Danielle. Hello. How's your week going? Uh, chaotic, but you know, that's for another time. What's up with you? Same. <laughs> Same. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> well, I don't think I told the podcast listeners about this, but you know this, that my... Um, Computer had a logic board failure mm, yeah. um, right as I was finishing my first novel. So I lost my first novel entirely and had to recreate it from my longhand notes. Um, I lost some other stuff too, but that was that was the big one. And it sucked. My computer is less than two years old, so I wasn't expecting that to happen. But since I got it back, it, it just ain't it just ain't right. Like there's just something wrong with it. I'm getting weird messages. I can't enroll myself and like stay logged into shit like my computer just was fixed technically but it's not the same so every time i use it it's a fucking nightmare and i have to log into everything every time i use it so i know somebody's gonna probably write in and say do this do this i've done it all don't write in (laughs) i'm taking it back to the place where i got it fixed and making them deal with it but yeah it's kind of a Pain in the ass. Cool. It makes my week longer in a lot of ways. So I, I'm I'm assuming it's not under a warranty where you could just get the whole thing replaced or something. Oh, it's under warranty, but they will not replace it. What? Yeah. Cause they they fixed the problem. Yeah. The problem was that my computer was not turning on because the logic board was fried. So they fixed the problem as far as they're concerned, which means they do not have to give me a new computer, even though it doesn't actually work. <laughs> That is fucking insane. That's where we are in our lives. But that's okay. I I will talk about the the depths of it another time of rewriting a novel from scratch um, and not saving things because you're an idiot who doesn't think their work is good enough to save. That is a story for another time. But something really funny happened to me recently, and I thought that you would get a big kick out of it. Okay. So I've... I'm dating. I'm officially dating for the first time in my life at 46 for the first time in my fucking life, which is weird. Um, Wait, so let me let me back up um, and just ask you a few other questions. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. So when you say the first time in your life, I mean, you were, did you date at all? Like, I, I guess am I, I'm asking, is it a different type of thing from like your youth? Because you were obviously married for a while. And this is like another, like, what is the difference between sort of like dating as a young person and dating now at 46? What makes it different for you? Yeah. Well, dating as a young person for me was, I like you, let's fuck, let's date, we're together. I see. Yes. Like, it was just no, there was no conscious thought about, should we be together? Is this the right person for me? What are they actually like? It was just that immediate spark. And then- we're an item. (laughs) And then it's like, if it's miserable, I have to figure it out. If it's great, I have to figure it out. It just, there was no forethought. It was just kind of the spontaneity of it, I guess, was more when I was younger. It was less browsing and more just like buying the first thing you see on the shelf and then having it forever type of feeling. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, good. And part of the, what I've discovered about myself in therapy this year is that the reason I did that is because I didn't think I was worthy of being chosen by somebody. So if somebody was interested in me, I was like, well, I'm going to give it a shot because, good Lord, this might not ever happen again. Yep. That's uh, exactly what I've been in therapy for for over a decade. So 
It's uh, but that it also extends to other areas of my life, like not just dating, but also like I, I just have a general um belief that I'm not good enough for a lot of things. So right, you know, oh, which I, I hear is what I'm saying. Yeah, it breaks my heart, but I know that so many of us go through it, and I hate it, but it really affects so much of my life, and um, so that's kind of what I've been working through in therapy, and that's why I've been feeling better about myself, and like I, I've gotten through. Like, I've clearly made a life despite this being a cornerstone of my personality, but it just hasn't worked for me. It doesn't work for me anymore. So I've so the difference now is that I'll meet someone, I'll be interested, and instead of kind of jumping in, I just hold back and say, like, all right, there are steps. There are questions to ask. There are things to discover. There's some work that I have to do before I figure out if this person is worthy of my time which is a question I have never asked myself. <laughs> yeah. I have never asked, are they worthy of me? Which is so fucked. <laughs> like, if you are younger than me, please start asking yourself that question before, way, years before I did. Um, because as it turns out, it kind of changes who you even choose. Yes. Like, from the get-go. One thing that I never expected... And actually said flat out several times to you and other people, I'm never going to meet anybody in my hometown. When I left Warwick, I had never seen a dick. And I expected that I will never see a dick while I live here as an adult. It's just not the place for me to meet somebody. Well. (laughs) So I did meet somebody here. And he's real cool. And it's early days, just figuring it out, but I like spending time with him. Well, as your sensible friend who has been through therapy as well, I am excited for you, but I'm not too excited, if you know what I mean. Like, I don't want, I mean, we're going to talk about this probably with your movie today. I don't want to overinvest in the idea of these very cute details being play. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, completely. Yeah. I, I absolutely know what you're saying, because I'm I'm I have to re- I have to try to not do that myself. That's also yeah. part of my not choosing someone is that it's very easy to get wrapped into a fantasy life. Yes, because you haven't asked any questions of them <laughs> to face the reality of them. <laughs> so yeah. I'm actively not doing that. Yeah, me too. I mean, and I think that, you know, that's a pretty common thing for people to. It's very hard, to be honest, to not overinvest in those types of things. I mean, especially when it comes to movies. Like, I mean, we've got a hundred plus episodes of of me like using movies as real life, you know, a lot of times. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm not gonna say that for you because I I wanna be your friend that's encouraging but sensible. And but Thank I will say you. generally that I am I'm very happy for you that you're dating. Thank generally, you. You know? Yeah. It feels good. Like it feels like it's the right time. Like, I didn't rush it. I didn't push it too hard. I'm not being unrealistic. And I'm also not actively, like, on apps or, like, making it my part-time job. I'm still very much the way I've always been, which is, if it happens, it happens. Except I'm just open to it now in a way that I haven't been for years. So it's been happening. As it turns out, meeting guys is not hard, but liking guys is very hard for me. Yes. As... It, I don't know, it feels like it kind of should be hard because yeah. you don't want to just like like everybody. You can't like everybody or anybody, exactly. you know? Um, you have to be selective because you're amazing and important and your in your time and your energy and your love is valuable. So, you know, I guess that's maybe really what I was asking before in terms of like, what is dating? How You know, because you dating is such a broad term. And yeah. People do it so differently. Like, I think that dating, maybe in the way that you're saying it, is actually dating. Like, just keeping an open mind, talking to a bunch of different folks, like, not committing to necessarily everything or the first thing or whatever. Because, yeah, I I have had to realize over the course of my lifetime that dating is not obsession. <laughs> Instant <laughs> obsession. Um, right. That is that is that is the opposite of dating, in fact. So yeah, and that's I think too, that line, that like going exclusive line is fuzzy. Yeah. Right? Because 
I mean, listen, I'm doing, again, I'm doing a Vanderpump Rules rewatch where that is that line is always in question with all of those motherfuckers. Like, oh, uh, were we dating or together when you had sex with that girl in Vegas? Or, you know right. what I mean? And, and everyone is always calling into question the timeline of, like, when somebody started dating somebody and whether or not that's they're allowed to date or have sex with other people, right? Right. Because I think maybe for folks, and, and certainly for me when I was younger, if I talked to somebody on the phone once or something and we we were together forever and you're not allowed to look at other people, which is so <laughs> not realistic now. Like, I'm like, why did I think that? I was young. I was stupid. Oh, no. You know, I just thought, if you want to talk to me, you have to be the, I have to be the only girl you're talking to and I don't care if you don't know me at all. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> now I'm like, that is so dumb. But that conversation, <laughs> when it happens, I think is feels natural. It it'll it'll come at a natural place, you know, for you. And you'll be like, okay, well, I've I've been in, out with this person enough. I know that they're quality. I know that we like each other. And so why not take it to the next level? It's just a very adult approach, I think, to be like this is what's up with me and this is how I'm feeling. How are you feeling? Yeah. Do you feel like I feel this and you may feel similarly or not, but like, I'm kind of excited. I mean, not that I'm dating. I'm not dating. I'm actually looking for a job, which is worse than dating. So I don't have time (laughs) for dating. It is very similar, by the way, dating and, and looking for a job. They're very similar, but looking for a job is much worse. I was actually like looking forward to being an older person who's dating because it just feels so much more, I don't know, like less high stakes, less dramatic. You're just like, God damn it. We've all, everyone's divorced now. Everybody has fucking alienated their children. Like we're just like, now we're just like old people. We don't have to move in together. We don't have to like fucking be joined at the hip. (laughs) Like it's relaxed. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's actually very relaxed. Yeah. It's very relaxed. And you're right. There are hardly any stakes. It's really, you're able to, I'm finding that I'm able to focus more on like, is this a person that I want to see more and have in my life? And what kind of fun can we have? And what kind of like, how can we enhance each other's lives essentially? Yeah. And it's not, are you going to help me pay bills? Are we going to move in together? Are we going to get married? There's like no pressure for any of that because I've never wanted any of that shit. Like the times that I've even done it were not really to plan for me. So now it kind of feels like the world is caught up with how relaxed I am about dating. (laughs) Yeah. I just want to hang out and have fun and like share a life with someone. That's, That's what's exciting to me is like sharing something intimate with somebody. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I used to have this old coworker who was in... I think she was in her 60s and was single and would tell me about dating. And she was just like, at that point, you're just like hoping that they don't have a heart attack and die. You just like (laughs) really you're stuck in your ways. You know, you don't necessarily need to move in together. We see each other when we see each other. And you just, (laughs) you know, you just keep each other informed of your ailments because the ailments are the Talking about ailments is actually, like, functionally an important part of a relationship. Yes. You oh, know? If I'm, st- if I'm still dating in my 60s, I'm just going to show up and be like, I emailed you my fucking chart. Do our charts match? Because we need to have the same kind of lung issues if we're going to get together. <laughs> yeah. We, ca- we can't go to the botanical gardens this weekend for <laughs> a Chihuly exhibit because I fucking have knee surgery the next day and <laughs> you know it's like this is it, functional oh information God. for a relationship so i appreciate that actually absolutely it's it's kind of it's interesting and fun and i'm i'm having fun right now i never expected any of this i did i did roll the boulder out in front from in front of the cave this summer i did make that pronouncement that like I'm making out this year and it has worked. That has worked. But I did not expect any of this to continue after that initial rolling of the boulder. I, I for some reason did. I thought the boulder is so heavy 
that when you roll it away, it's open season forever. Like, it's at least 20 years. The boulder is replaceable. (laughs) 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 But for now, it's cool. And so, yeah, I definitely, I don't know, I'm just, I'm kind of proud of myself for some growth. (laughs) (laughs) Because it took a lot of growth for me to get to this point where I could date again. Yeah. um, And wanted to. Um, But yeah, I'm having, I'm having fun and an interesting time. Well, I'm completely stoked for you. I'm living vicariously through you, and I can't wait to see what happens. So, And there will come a day where I just date people and don't tell you guys about it. I, I, I'll always tell you, Millie, but like, there will come a day when I am dating and not telling anybody about it. But I'm not telling anybody about it. Like, I, You don't even know. Y'all don't even know who the fuck I am when it comes to dating. <laughs> I could be married. You don't know that. That would be amazing if at the end of the series, like the end of recording the show, your very last episode, you're like, P.S., I've been married this whole time. Oh, yeah. I've been married for 35 years and none of you knew. <laughs> and I'm only 43. I know. Do the math. And all you thought is that I was a horny nun. <laughs> to be fair, you did say you were a horny nun. Like the people yeah. can only go on the information you're giving them. Yeah. And that's all I'm giving them. That's what I'm that's all I'm saying. Yeah. Y'all don't know me. Well, Danielle, we have a hell of an episode. <laughs> we really do. Probably going to bring up some things we just talked about, to be honest. But um, I this was something that I wanted to do, right? This was a, yes. a me thing. So I'll just tell you the theme for this week, titled by Danielle Henderson, Turn On, Tune In, Drop Out, Movies That Remove Us From The Head of living. And that very long title is to suggest that the movies that we pitched for this week are ones that are, they're not just even simple comfort films for me. They are like, I'm having the worst day or the worst week or the worst whatever, and I want to escape to a new reality. Yes. I want to be in this fantastical fabulous world that is not the world that I'm currently in. And and that was maybe a, a thing that I felt very strongly about in terms of what I picked, because I wasn't sure, like, what angle you were going to pick, because I know they're not always the same. But that was the most important, crucial fact for me, was, like, I want to move. I want to talk about a movie that I'm just, like, nothing bad ever happens in this world. It's so beautiful, and it's just, like, an escapist fantasy. Completely. And even if bad things happen, it's like wrapped up in some kind of bow or solved. Like there's no open-endedness to the misery in the movie. Like it has to be solved and have some kind of a happy ending. Because it, I can't I can't leave a hellish world, watch a movie, and feel worse about the world I'm returning to. A- absolutely. When, I, when, when I'm looking for movies that fit this kind of theme. Absolutely. It's like even the bad stuff that happens if there are bad stuff that happens is like a fake bad thing where it's like a charming bad thing that gets resolved maybe, but it has like zero real life stakes, I think. Yeah. You know? And to be honest with you, I like this pairing because it's like a, an old, much older movie with like a movie that was made in the past, you know, 20 or something years. And I rewatched your movie again, hadn't seen it in, I don't know, maybe about five years. And I fucking cried the almost the entire time. I cried almost Aww. the entire time. And I cried, because there's definitely, we'll talk about this, there's definitely a part of your movie where I actually cry. But then I also cried at some other stuff that I didn't expect to cry in. I kind of did too this time. But it yeah. still, it, did, it wasn't a bad cry. Like it didn't, it made me feel like in those scenes that I was newly crying at in this rewatch, I felt like, I was really seeing something that was being revealed about our connection to the universe. And that yeah. made me cry and made me like happy and sad. Yes. I, I, it was very emotional rewatch for me, but still fits the theme. Yeah, <laughs> to- totally, sure. totally agree. Uh, I'm sure we'll dissect that a lot more when it's your turn. And your movie, I got to say, there's one scene, there's several scenes, but one scene in particular that makes me so happy and it's so dreamlike. And I would, pay all of the money I have in my life to have someone recreate 
a specific dress that Ginger Rogers is wearing in this movie. If it's the dress that I'm thinking of. It has to be. We got to talk about that dress. Oh. Okay. So, yeah, I think I'm going first this week. My film for the theme. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Movies that remove us from the hell of living is from 1935. It was written by Alan Scott and Dwight Taylor. It was directed by Mark Sandrich, and it's called Top Hat. You see, every once in a while, I, I suddenly find myself dancing. Oh, I suppose it's some kind of an affliction. So, Daniel, I think this might be the oldest movie we've ever done on the podcast. I think so. Yeah. Very impressive. I know. I'm not actually sure if we've ever done a 1930s movie. Now that I'm thinking about it. But, hey, we're doing one now. Better late than never. So, I'm sure I do not have to tell you about Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers in a general sense because they're probably the most famous partner dancers of all time. Right? Two, maybe, of the most famous people from the classic Hollywood era. I mean, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, dance on air. They had style. They had grace. Rita Hayward, give it, you know what I'm saying? They're famous. <laughs> They're famous. They were in a total of 10 films together. Nine of them were released between the years of 1933 and 1939. And then they released the last one in 1949, which was the only film that they did in color. Um, and then this movie, Top Hat, was. I think their fourth movie together, and they were, it was the first one that was written specifically for them, right? Because prior to this, like, their very, very first movie, Flying Down to Rio, was set, they were both, like, fifth build or something. They were kind of, like, <laughs> really low down the cast list. But then their performance together was so memorable that they were like, put them in everything. And then by the time... Top Hat came out, they were like, let's write a movie for them, let's center it around them. And it was their most successful, I, I think, out of all their movies. And I'll give you a one-sentence synopsis, even though, really, the setup for this film is very classic Hollywood narrative. We'll get to that in a second. But Top Hat is about an American dancer who is about to open a show in London, meets a woman who's on vacation, who confuses him for the husband of her best friend. <laughs> who she's just never met. <laughs> There's a lot of, like, screwball antics in this film, as you can imagine. A lot of it is wrapped up on this confusion, which we'll get to in just a second. But Bear Mins, the story goes like this. Fred Astaire plays this guy named Jerry Travers. He's an American performer who is in London. He's about to open a show for this producer named... Horace Hardwick, who is played by the the great character actor Edward Everett Horton. If you're into old movies, you have seen him in everything. He was a staple of comedies in this era. You know, he was in actual multiple uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers films. And he was known to play this stock character. It was like he's always the guy that's like, kind of like a stuffy-ish type of dude, but he always is doing a double take. So he's kind of the guy that's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, what? Like, <laughs> he's got that, like, double reaction thing going. And he does it so well. It's it's perfect. But so he plays kind of the producer of the show. And then also he has this butler who shows up in these very early scenes, especially. And it's this actor named Eric Bloor. And he... And he he plays this, he's another one of these like stock character actors in early Hollywood. He's always a weird butler, like a weird, funny, quirky butler. And he was always <laughs> either a nutty butler or a nutty waiter. Um, and British, right? Very British. But so at some point, Horace gets this message that his wife and her friend are headed down to Venice, Italy for a vacation. And his wife is like, listen, I brought this friend who is single and you should, you know, bring Jerry if you come to meet us because maybe they'll hit it off. Okay, so you've got that information up front. That pretty much sets up the first tap dance sequence for Fred Astaire because this man is a tap dancing machine. And he is a fucking menace. <laughs> 
He's a menace for sure. He uses his his skill of tap dancing to be a fucking menace. Yes. And he, he loves to fuck with people via tap dance. Like there's a very early scene at the beginning where he shows up to this like all silent kind of like stuffy London gentleman's club where everybody is like reading the newspaper in silence. And then he's just like, fuck y'all. And he starts <laughs> clank, clank, clanking those feet. Which I appreciate. This, this to me, I mean, I'm not sure how you feel about Fred Astaire as kind of like, I don't know, just like considering him in a uh, romantic lead kind of way. When, I, when I've considered him just generally, I'm like, yeah, he's, he's there. I mean, he doesn't like necessarily stir the, the loins as a, um, I don't know, like a Brando or something like that. But like, I gotta say, Fred Astaire, especially in this movie, but in a lot of these movies that he did with Ginger Rogers, he's so fucking charming. He's so charming. I I will give you that he is very charming, um, but I'm just gonna come out with it and say that I think he looks like a fucking creep. Oh, how dare you? He's got the pointy face of like an old, you remember the devil character in uh, the Powerpuff Girls? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Okay. <laughs> He's got this like angular pointed cartoon face that does not stir any of the loins, but also just makes me feel like he's very boyish at the and and old at the same time. Yes. It's like a it's like a competing Benjamin Button happening on his face. Look, I mean, say what you will about <laughs> like <laughs> You want me to say more? A you want me boyish, to say more? <laughs> diminutive, pointy ass. Fucking creep, dude. But he is charming. Yes, I actually, (laughs) I think he's very cute. And I think it's perfect for this film, which I'll get into in just a second. But so he is tap dancing so much at the beginning of this film that he disturbs the guest in the room that's directly below him and Horace's room, right? It's this woman named Dale Tremont, and she is played by Ginger Rogers. And by the way, I would be remiss if I didn't say, this hotel that everyone is in is this fucking incredible, maximalist, art deco, set piece dream. It is it really is. wild. I mean, it is so opulent that it puts the Madonna in to fucking shame. It is so awesome. The beds alone. The beds alone, and like just the weird doorways and the shit on the walls, and I don't know yeah. what what's going on there, but it's like it really is that sort of like overdone classic Hollywood set piece. It, it's just a it's a fantasy, and this is what I love about this film, and I love about these films. It's just these like fantasy sets, but so you've got these giant set pieces. Again, you're in this world where. two men are having a conversation about going on a vacation together and then it turns into a song and a tap dance routine. So this is the world that you're in. It's Hollywood magic, old Hollywood magic. So of course, Dale comes up and is like, who is dancing at this time of night? Jerry Caesar is immediately smitten. He doesn't know anything about her. Duh. As it turns out, Dale has been Traveling with this Italian fashion designer named Alberto Bedini, who is played by this actor named Eric Rhodes, you may assume he is a gay man, as a lot of these (laughs) side characters, to be honest. But he's actually in love with Dale and wants to marry her. And and more importantly, he wants to, like, defend her honor all the time, which is a running gag in the film, right? So... Yeah, this is the setup for what happens throughout the entire film, which is this hilariously messy romantic conflict. Okay, so Jerry eventually is like, Dale, hang out with me. One of my favorite sequences in the film is when they're dancing under this pavilion when it's raining. And Fred Astaire is singing, Isn't This a Lovely Day, which was written by Irving Berlin, who did all the music for Top Hat. And it's like that moment where... She's finally, like, charmed by him. And then the best part to me is that she's in this, like, full equestrian outfit because she's, like, riding her horse. And she's wearing pants, which you rarely saw in this era, period. So I love that their kind of first partner dance together is her in pants. 
And it's also, it's kind of fun that she's like giving herself over to this moment, but she thinks that Jerry is her friend's husband. She thinks Jerry is Horace because Horace is not in the room when she comes upstairs. Yes. So she's kind of like, fuck, I'm falling in love with my friend's husband. That's like, right. This is balls. But in that moment where they're dancing together, you start to see the chemistry and it's kind of like, oh, this is what Horace and Madge wanted all along anyway. So it's kind of a fun switcheroo. Yeah, I I watched the clip, this clip from this pavilion dance sequence a lot. Like I will look it up on YouTube. I love at the end of it, they're like, they just kind of sit down cross-legged and then they just kind of shake each other's hand. That to me is so sweet. Yeah. I just love it. But like Danielle just said, here's the conflict. They're falling for each other, but then they realize that they don't know who each other is. And Dale actually thinks that Jerry is Horace. And I guess you find out that Dale is the friend of, of his wife. Uh, and I guess they're in London before they go to Venice. Yeah. Very confusing. But Dale's friend is Madge Hardwick, who is played by the wonderful Helen Broderick. She's another great character actor of this era. And the funny thing is, is that so Dale thinks Jerry is Horace, but then now Madge thinks that her husband is cheating on her with another woman. (laughs) That whole scene is so great where she's like, yeah, let me deal with it. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a kerfuffle and... Madge is secretly my favorite character because she hates men. Or at least she she is she's not enchanted by men. She's like, oh yeah. men. You know, I love that character. She's a very she's a realist. She's a very realistic approach to like, yeah, I'm here because my husband's producing this fucking show and he's dragging me all over the goddamn universe. And I'm just I've had it. Yeah. <laughs> and she's she's so not pressed to be married to him. By the way, she's just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, men are going to be men. They're going to cheat on me, I guess. There's like, one point where she says, like, well, if you're going to keep being a spinster, this is keep going to keep happening to you because men are philanderers. Men are the worst. Yeah. Also, it's so funny because at one point, this I had to actually look up this term because I didn't actually know it. At one point, one of the male characters calls Dale a designing woman. Oh, yeah. And I was like, huh, a designing woman. And, uh... As you know, it's pretty much like a a heartbreaker, a, a loose woman, a heartbreaker type. And a great TV show from the 80s. Of course. <laughs> and a great movie. Does, is, hey, high-ass Gregory Peck might be in Designing, Wim- Designing Woman. <laughs> Let me look this up. Designing Woman, 1957, starring Gregory Peck and Lauren Bacall. Mm. Your high-ass king is in... Designing woman. Add it to the list. Add it to the list. But, um, okay. So, Jerry can't stop tap dancing. His show opens and it's this entire, you know, dreamlike Broadway sequence where every, there's a bunch of guys in top hats behind him and then he gets, they get fake shot with Jerry's cane. It's very, very old timey Hollywood. Jerry and Horace eventually make it down to Venice after that because Jerry obviously wants to find Dale. And Venice... Okay, so they're they're theoretically in a foreign country. Perhaps on the streets of a foreign country. And Venice basically looks like the It's a Small World ride from Disneyland. (laughs) It's so funny and so fake. We love it. There's also a joke that gets tucked in there at some point that involves the butler putting a cooked steak on someone's eye. So that is humor. 1935 style. (laughs) (laughs) But also, there are feathery gowns and tuxedos with tails, and there's the dancing cheek to cheek. And... Oh, that gown. So I read... That so there's this entire story apparently about that gown. That so at one point Ginger Rogers comes out and she's wearing a dress that's all feathers. And from what I understand, she designed that dress. <gasps> and she insisted that it be in the movie. Like she was like, you know, talking to the costume designer of the film and said, I want to put this feather dress in the film. I created that's it. So cool. And 
According to what I read, apparently they were ostrich feathers from what I read. But that, because it was kind of like a handmade dress, there were feathers fucking everywhere. Like, <laughs> and I was trying <laughs> to really look for it when I watched it this time, because I'm like, certainly there are fucking feathers all over this floor of this movie. And there were. You could see feathers everywhere. But I think that adds to the cuteness of it. Yes. Because she's like, she's letting loose and really letting go and her dress is coming apart and she's just like, fuck it. Yeah. I mean, the only way it would be an actual problem is if Fred Astaire fucking doing a soft shoe slips on one of those feathers and dies. (laughs) Just face plants into a fucking beam. Yeah. It's like that bit of showgirls when the girl like throws the beads on stage and then the other girl like (laughs) slips on a bead and... And that's showbiz, baby. But uh, I I love that dress. It's an iconic dress. And the idea that she thought of it herself is really cute to me. So good. So you've got, like, you know, these wonderful, beautiful dance numbers. We're in Italy. Reminder, we're in Italy. So there's this one very big, probably the biggest number in the whole movie, where (laughs) it's like, talking about gondolas and then the the song is just literally people rhyming as many Italian sounding words with the phrase the piccolino <laughs> oh god they're like whatever <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's close enough we're American we don't care yeah it's like you know such a hilarious American Hollywood number about an Italian thing from that era is which is so funny. But um, you know, Match is wisecracking about how men suck, as we love, as I've told you. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, I don't think I have to tell you that eventually all the confusion is resolved and everything works out because this is Hollywood baby, and that's why we love it. But, you know, I think for me personally, I it's not probably not too much of a surprise that I would have picked this 1930s tap dancing musical as an escapist pleasure film, I guess. I mean, to me, I mean, I love dancing. I'm not, I've never been a professional dancer, but I love watching people dance. And I think that Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers particularly were really special because they're very effervescent when they dance Mm -hmm. together. And it looks like they're having a lot of fun with each other, you know? And the one thing that I actually do appreciate to talk about, you know, our feelings on whether or not we consider Fred Astaire a sex symbol or not, is that there almost feels like there is this kind of gender role swap when they're together, which is that Fred is very boyish and gentle and Ginger's the sassy one, which, you know, for the 1930s, pretty good, pretty great, actually. Yeah, And I just, I love that. I don't know who said it, but there's that quote about Ginger Rogers doing everything that Fred Astaire did, but she did it backwards and in heels. That's right. And when you watch them together, you're like, they're just so effortless. They really are great partners because they're so effortless and like their size is comparable and it just looks dreamy to watch them move because you're like, oh, I didn't know human beings could do that. Yeah. (laughs) And so that also kind of takes you out of the reality realm because you're watching these two people who are just like cosmically unreal yeah like like so good at dancing that like they take you out of reality yeah and like and the funny thing is is that when i see them together and even in the drama bits even when they're acting and not dancing i don't even really consider them to be this like hot passionate romantic pairing necessarily like i just think that they're two people who are connected and they're at total ease with each other And that makes me happy. Like, I don't need them to be, like, hot and horny for each other. I need them to just feel like they have this very natural, beautiful relationship. And I was reading a lot about them separately, obviously, when I was doing research about this movie for this week. And it's funny because they, they actually did have a great relationship. They were, like, lifelong friends and he, he is quoted a lot as saying that, you know, she was his favorite person to dance with because, you know, he had been a dancer since he was a child, essentially, and he was doing partner dancing with many different people across his career and then did a lot of his own dancing, too. But he was like, she was my favorite. 
And also, I have to say, because there was a lot about Fred Astaire that I actually didn't know, which is super interesting to me. So apparently Fred Astaire really influenced men's fashion in the 20th century. Like, hmm. apparently he was the the kind of bridge between that sort of, like, more formal men's style from Europe and, like, what we consider to be, like, modern men's style. Because he was basically, instead of wearing, I mean, I know he wears tuxedos and top hats in this film, but then in his real life, he was wearing a lot of, like, sport coats and button-down shirts, which is really? obviously standard men's clothing at this point. And I swear to God, I read this somewhere. I'm not quoting it directly. I'm paraphrasing it. But apparently he was the guy that got men out of wearing spats. What? Yes. Like, guys were wearing spats. Remember we talked about fucking spats? Like, who the fuck would wear those things? But he's the guy that's like, I don't fuck with spats. We're doing a new thing in a new era. No way. Yeah. I didn't know that. I know. Good for um, you, Fred Astaire. I know. He's pushing shit forward. And um, the the <laughs> other thing I will say, two other things. A, he became a skateboarder in his what? late 70s. So he what was in his fuck? 70s and decided to take up skateboarding. I'm so... What? Yes. Because apparently he was really physically fit his entire life, right? It tracks like a lot of those dancers were very athletic and stayed athletic throughout, throughout their entire career. But yeah, apparently he took up skateboarding in his 70s and then like broke his wrist when he was skateboarding in his driveway. He broke his wrist in his 70s. I mean, yay, but also so weird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of think that's remarkable that an old guy would be like, I want to be a skateboarder in my 70s. The other thing most relevant to the Exactly Right fam, Fred Astaire was a true crime aficionado. He was, was a real? murderino, folks. What? Yeah. Fred Astaire loved true crime and skateboarding. So, there you go. <sighs> oh, God, I love these facts so much. I did not know any of that about him. Yes. But, at any rate, I love this film so, so much. It truly puts me on another plane in another dimension it's like a dimension where nothing bad happens and I can like step out of my shit for just a moment and just be in this beautiful art deco 1930s dream world of tap dancing and, you know, fancy clothes and funny character actors. So that is my pick for this week. It's such a good pick. I'm so glad you did. Well, mine is uh, taking us in a little bit of a different direction. Uh, my movie was released in 2001. It was written by Guillaume Laurent and Jean-Pierre Genet and directed by Jean-Pierre Genet. My movie is Amelie. With the discovery of a simple childhood treasure, she begins a quest to fix other people's lives and perhaps her own as well. Do you remember <laughs> there was this... <laughs> episode of Saturday Night Live when this movie came out where Chris Kattan played Amelie. No. <laughs> I gotta find it and send it to <laughs> I you. I remember it being so fucking funny. Um, I gotta look that up. Maybe Casey can look it up and send it to us. But there was like Chris Kattan in an Amelie wig and he was just like giggling. God. I do not remember that at all. <laughs> <laughs> it cracks me up. Oh, God. All right, well, my film, um, I don't know. My, I think I picked it because it definitely takes me out of, takes me out of reality because there's such a strong representation of fantasy in this film. Um, and there's so much to pay attention to. There's so much to look at. And it's relaxing, though. It's not like you're concentrating so hard that you will miss something. Like, you can really, from the beginning of the film, you become encompassed in the story of an entire character's life, which I find very comforting. So my one sentence synopsis of Amelie is, a shy and lonely young woman brings her fantasy life into reality as she searches for meaning. Perfect. And one, one thing I love about this film is, um, so Jean-Pierre Genet is a very well-known director um, who you haven't heard about a lot recently, even though he, you know, he directed The City of Lost Children, A Very Long Engagement. Delicatessen is from 1991 is a great film if you haven't seen it. And this movie, and he just, um, 
he kind of, he didn't disappear, but I kind of looked up to see like, well, why hasn't he been as prolific as he had been in the late 90s, early 2000s? And the short answer is that he's too weird. Like people didn't want to invest in his quirky fucking movies. What? So as we, this is again, one of the side effects of moving towards a Marvel franchise overtaking the film world is people didn't want to take a risk on his weird movies anymore. That is depressing as shit. Yeah, he was having a lot of problems getting funding. Even though this movie in particular, like he had several movies that put him on the map, but Amelie was huge. Oh my God, it is absolutely huge. And also like, gets still gets referenced all the time. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's again, disappointing and surprising, but yeah. that's why there's been a, a lull in his career, so to speak, is that he's had a hard time getting funding because a lot of his films deal with, you know, fantasy reali- realism, you know, and, and science fiction and kind of these fantasy elements. Um, and he's self-taught. Like, he started in animation, but he's a self-taught director. Um, so I hope that somebody decides to give him money again one day. <laughs> yep. Because uh, his films are classic and necessary. He did release a film called Big Bug on Netflix in, t- in 2022, but I don't think it got much fan fanfare. Mm. Um, but he's, I just, I like his style. Like he uses very lush and saturated colors, like um, like greens and reds and blues are very present in this movie. And one device that I like about how the film was written is that they introduce everyone by discussing their likes and dislikes, which kind of gets you into who they are as a person. So we first meet Amelie as she's born. Like, we literally see Amelie being born. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they go through her life. And and even under the credits, there's this kind of image of this little girl who's like probably four or five. And she's just doing all these cute little kid things. And it just... It's nice to look at, but it also just gives you such a, a a feeling of why this kid is locked in her own mind for the rest of the movie. Because she spends, she's an only child. She spends so much time alone, and her parents don't send her to school for a kind of sad and funny reason. Her dad's a doctor. Her mom is a schoolmistress, and her she at one point um, she says, you know, she's wants her dad to hug her, but he's so cold. And the only time he ever touches her is when he's giving her an exam and it makes her heart beat so fast that he thinks that she has a heart defect. So they can't send her to school. Um, So she's a homeschooled kid and she's so like, you know, kind of alone. And, you know, she's been raised by, um, as to directly quote the film, she's been raised by a neurotic and an iceberg and she retreats to her imagination. Like this is a household where even her fish is suicidal. Uh, (laughs) So... She, her mom dies in this freak accident um, and she's kind of left alone with her dad, who's very unsociable and kind of focuses on building this shrine to his dead wife. And then we kind of jump to her as a young woman. And when we, when we meet Amelie, as we will see her in the rest of the film, played by Audrey Tautou, we meet her when she's like 22 years old and she's living in Montmartre and she's like working at this restaurant called the Two Windmills. And she kind of keeps to herself. Like she has a kind of, you know, she doesn't have a, a partner and she's kind of left to her imagination, even as an adult. Um, and there are people that are in her life that these characters that, again, we meet by learning about their likes and dislikes. So you have Suzanne, who owns this cafe, um, Georgette, who's the tobacconist. She's a hypochondriac. Gina's her co-worker, who just broke up with Joseph, uh, played by Dominique Pignon, who's fantastic. And this writer called Hippolito, and this, um, you know, this this flight attendant um, named Georgianne. And you kind of just meet her world. And there's a, a grocer that she goes to every day, um, Colignon, and he works with this ki- this young kid named Lucien, who Colignon is really cruel to. Like, he just is constantly tell- telling people, like, oh, he's like, you know, he's mentally defective and, you know, he's slow and, you know, he's just cruel. He's a cruel, horrible person. And then she also starts to meet her neighbors. And what we know about Amelie from her likes and dislikes is that she loves movies. She likes to look back at people's faces in the dark. Um, She likes noticing details in movies that people often miss. She likes to skip stones. She likes to crack creme brulee and, like, dig her hand in grains of sand. So the movie is very, um, it's, it's not just a visual 
for me, even it's not just a visual sensation. It's like the, it's a very tactile sensation happening in the film that I think is translated very well to the character. And so as she starts to kind of dig into this fantasy life, on the day that Princess Diana is reported as dead, um, she drops the top of her perfume bottle. It cracks into an old tile in her bathroom. And behind the tile is this box. And it's a box just filled with knickknacks. And she decides that she is going to find the owner and return the box to him and become a regular do-gooder. And so as the film goes on, we're following her life where she's trying to do good for people. And the feeling that it gives her is so all-encompassing. But she quickly realizes that she's not doing anything good for herself. And her own life is not positively, it might be positively impacted by these these kind of little games she's playing with people, but it's not, she's not getting any return in in investment, so to speak, until she meets Nino Concampois, who's played by Mathieu Kosovitz. He's so cute. And she kind of sees him like digging under a photo booth one day. And you're like, what is he doing? And eventually it comes to pass that you learn that he's collecting all the discarded photos and putting them back together in a photo booth book. Like he's making his own photo book. Um, and there's this one guy that keeps appearing over and over again. So it's like this really cute, I don't know, he's he's quirky in his own way, essentially. And yeah. Amelie kind of falls for him instantly. And as she decides to start learning who he is and they get involved in their own game of cat and mouse, she does start kind of coming around to this notion of wanting love in her own life. And her neighbor helps her with that the most, Raymond Dufayel, who's this painter, and he has like a brittle bone disease, so he stays inside most of the time. He's been inside for like 20 years. And she kind of starts, which I think is an interesting technique, she kind of starts telling him about her life by talking about it in the third person. So when he responds to her and gives her advice, every, they both know that they're talking about her, but it's not as fraught. It's kind of easier for her to put it in that third person um, fantasy world. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know. I just, I love their relationship in the movie. And she also, you know, in her way of trying to make people's lives better, does some really cute and funny things. Like her dad, she keeps wanting her dad to travel and he won't go anywhere. So she takes this gnome off the top of her mom's shrine and sends it around the world with her tra- with her her flight attendant friend. And it just sends pictures back to the dad that's like, the gnome is traveling, why can't you, essentially? But yeah, she just gives so much happiness to other people. So when she meets Nino, it turns into this film that is just, I don't know, it's, it becomes like a real, like a very fraught love story, but it has such a happy ending. And I just, I don't know, I just love it. It takes me out of reality every time. I think being... Seeing Paris through Jean-Pierre Jeunet's eyes always transports me. I feel like this is one of the movies that I kind of feel like I'm in a place. Like I can feel, even before I went to Paris, and I saw this film before I ever went to Paris, and I felt like, oh, I know what the day-to-day there feels like because of this film. You know, maybe not specifically, but he did a really good job translating what it was like to kind of live in a small neighborhood and have a smaller world and want a bigger world, but not be able to access it yourself. I don't know. I just, I love it. I think it's so beautiful. It's it's visually stunning. And it just is a really funny, lovely story with a lot of sad moments. It's punctuated by a lot of sad moments, but they're almost immediately lifted um, by something else that happens that can just transport you to a different place. So I love it. Yeah, me too. Oh my God. I mean, first of all, like this movie was a, a movie that really like represents this like early 2000s era where, I mean, this to me feels like a style of film that would be adopted by so many types of people later. Like, even mm-hmm. even though Wes Anderson had technically made movies before this movie came out, I feel like his movies almost kind of morphed into a version of Amelie in terms of it being, like, wh- whimsical with all these different quirky characters, and but also, like, a, a kind of sadness underneath it too. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're right about that. Like, even though this movie is wonderful and life-affirming and beautiful, there is this kind of undercurrent of sadness for this Amelie character because, you know, she's essentially the person who brings joy and happiness to everybody else but herself. And because of her upbringing, she's not, she doesn't know how to, to, to 
reach out to love, essentially. Yeah. Uh, she wants it very badly, but she doesn't know how to kind of get there and connect with people. And her way of connecting to people is by these kind of like whimsical games that she plays. It's very childlike, right? Yeah. Which is ultimately what makes her and this Nino character so connected because they're both seen as kind of outcasts and weirdos. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, stuff in the film uh, where, you know, kind of Nino's co-workers, because Nino works at this, like, porn shop, right? <laughs> definitely and, works at, like, a sex shop, for sure. So there's a scene where Amelie comes to the shop to kind of look for him and bring him his book back, and, you know, one of his co-workers starts, like, talking about him, because, of course, she's like, does he have a girlfriend? Like, what's the story? And she's like, oh, no, he's just, like, a weird dude. He works part-time at a haunted house at the fair, and then he works at a sex shop, and he goes around collecting, like, weird, discarded, old, you know, photo booth photos and, you know, basically setting it setting it up to be like, he's just like you. Y'all yeah. are destined to be together. Come on. Exactly. Exactly. It's so sweet. It's just sweet. Yeah. And uh, the other thing that I think is so insane about uh, this is that Nino is played by the same guy that directed Lahane. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen Lahane. Yeah. But I'm like... Yo, the guy that directed that movie is in a romantic comedy. <laughs> a whimsical <laughs> romantic comedy. You're like, holy what fucking shit. Matthew Kosovitz do. Yes. And I agree. Do it he's, all. he's so cute and wonderful in this film, as is she. I mean, yeah. she is she is fucking irresistible. And I don't care how hardened off you motherfuckers are about these types of movies. Cause let me tell you something. One thing that I thought was so, so interesting was that, so I went into my letterbox after I watched this movie and I'm like, I want to see what people think about Amelie. Like, I want to see what my fucking asshole cinephile friends think of Amelie. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of people that I know that are like, man, this movie is too cutesy wootsy, too artsy fartsy, too poopsy wootsy. Really? And I'm like, Fuck y'all. <laughs> this movie's great. <laughs> well, also, what we're dealing with now, too, is if, if you're watching Amelie for the first time now in 2023, you've been affected by the years of tweeness that came after this movie. Yes. So after this, four years after this movie is when Nathan Rabin coined the term manic pixie dream girl. Like, 100%. we've been dealing with that since... After this film. So when the film came out, that was not the intention for her to be like this cutesy, impossible fucking character. Yes. And I think because of the effect of watching women get denigrated throughout film over the last two decades, uh, a lot of people expect these kinds of characters to be insufferable now. Yes. And yes. it's not the case with her. The part that wrecked me, fucking wrecked me, was when... She brought that box of treasures back to the dude, back to yeah. Brodotto guy. Yeah, Dominique Brodotto. When he got emotional seeing his old toys, I fucking lost it. And that was something that did not happen, I think, when this movie came out. I Now that I'm an old sea hag <laughs> that is affected by memory and you know, mm -hmm. life and age. I'm like, that shit fucking put me out. I was like, I can't watch this grown man crying over his fucking old toys. And she just, did and that shit. The, the voiceover of like how, what it was making him think of and what he'd lost. And oh God, that was tough. <laughs> yeah. But it just makes me, this movie makes me just generally happy. I'm like, yes. I mean, as corny as it seems that people would want this type of magic in their lives and that, you know, like, you know, you get kind of eye-rolly when you think about, like, these types that kind of traipse through life on, like, a cloud. And they're like, I'm bringing, I'm sprinkling magic everywhere. It's like, yes, we all know life sucks a lot more than people like this can exist, I guess, is sort of the thing. I still get caught up in it. I still am like, I love well, this world. I love this world where, like, nobody is cynical and everybody is magical and happy and wonderful. 
and cute. Well, and also the thing that makes it different for me is that bad shit does happen. Like she literally cries in this movie two or three times. Like she's not a happy person overall. She's she's looking for happiness by doing good things. Like she's trying to kind of jumpstart that for herself. Mm -hmm. But she's not like oblivious to the world. She just kind of is saddened by the world. Yeah. And her place in it. And that's what forces her to action. So I, I think that makes it different from the, like, I'm just an oblivious, fun, quirky person who has no problems. Like, she just really is like, no, I got problems. I'm, I'm, yeah. I've been alone my whole life. Like, I felt isolated my entire life. And I don't know how to engage with people. And even yeah. when she starts engaging with Nino, she's just like, she does it in the quirk, like, the craziest way to the point where, like, Dufayel has to step in and be like, girl... Let me tell you how to do this. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. this, like you're gonna mess this up because you you can't you can't treat every relationship like this kind of fantasy world thing. Yeah. Um, so I kind of I appreciate that about the movie even more because she's real she's a realist. She's a I should say she's she's a fantasist who is aware of reality. So she yeah. is living in reality, but she's still a fantasist. But I just I yeah. love it. I love well, it. It takes me out of the world. Yeah. And it's such a delightful way every fucking time I watch it. Yeah. I guess I'm mostly thinking of, of like, maybe the perception of her whimsy and her magic creation. Like, because I kept thinking, like, okay, so this dad character that's getting the postcards from his gnome, right? You know, he seems to be very sad and very depressed. And I think in the real world, if you started receiving mail at your home from a gnome, <laughs> you would be like, what the fuck? And you would be freaked out and you would be like, somebody is watching me. And because we all live in that like horrible paranoia and distrust of everything. So I yeah. love a world where people are enchanted by her good doing in a way. So she's like, I know she's doing it out of sadness, but that the reaction to it is positive. Do you know what yes. I'm saying? Yeah, she's affecting change in a very good way in her life. Right. And that and encouraging so many people to live bigger and better lives. And even yeah. just simple, sim simple, like there's a, a scene with the writer at the end where it's just the simplest idea. And it makes his whole, you could see in his face that it makes his whole day better. It makes his, his career feel yes. valid. So she's right. doing like practically good things for people. Yes, and that their reactions aren't coming from this, like, super guarded, super cool, like, what are you doing type of place. It's coming from, like, oh, my God, like, she, something amazing just happened to me, and it's, they're in the moment. I don't know. That, I think that's obviously informed by just the world that we live in right now, and I'm like, nobody can do good things. Everybody is just, you know, calling people out and, like, telling people that they're dorks. So, anyway, that's, that is what enchanted me watching it again, but I am just generally in love with this movie, and I am so glad that I still have the same reaction to it as I did when I first saw it, so. Me too. Oh, I love it. That was a, this is a good double feature this week. I, did, I think so too, and uh, <laughs> I kind of was like, I love this world. Do I want to go back to watching <laughs> other films? I just want to stay in the fantasy world forever and ever. But... If you want to email us, we are at asawatchedidpod at gmail.com. Send us questions for bonus episodes. We also have a P.O. box. Um, you can find the address on our link tree, on our social media. But send us whimsical mail. Uh, maybe clues to other, you know, <laughs> maybe do the thing where you're like, if you want to see the next letter, you're going to have to meet me at the train station at 9 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> and that will be a Millie-specific experiment. <laughs> Listen, if you want to pay for me to go to a, a Parisian train station to follow your crazy little game, I'll, as long as you pay, <laughs> I'll show up. You can also leave us a voicemail uh, to play on the show if you want to leave us some whimsical cues that way. Um, all you have to do is record a voice memo on your phone and email it to I saw what you did pod at gmail.com. Please make it 60 seconds or less and record it in a quiet space. Uh, yes, and please find us on our social media. We are at I saw pod on Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Uh, we also have merch. Go to the I saw what you did section of the Exactly Right shop to find it. 
And we have bonus episodes coming out all the time. We have new bonus episodes dropping on the main feed now every third Thursday of the month. And our old bonus episodes are trickling out to the main feed every couple of weeks on Wednesdays. That's right. All right. So, Danielle, would you like to announce the movies for next week? Oh, you know, I would love to because our movies next week are The Lion in Winter from 1968 and On Golden Pond from 1981. Woo, woo, woo. Those are good ones. Well, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. The best of all time. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien. Episode mixing and theme music by Tom Bryfogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.